electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the memes, the Fed, and the Bitcoin roller coaster with billionaire investor Mark Lazary. As more and more people keep using Bitcoin, it's going to keep moving up. It's happened a little bit quicker than I thought it would. I should have bought a lot more. That was my mistake. <laughs> Where he's putting his money to work despite the unknown. Right now, the Fed's in a little bit of a box, at least for the next year or two. I don't know what happens you know, a couple of years from now, but at least for the next year or two, you want to be an investor. And the FDA approves the first Alzheimer's drug in decades, but the cost and efficacy are concerns. Biotech analyst Kevin Huang. There's only 18,000 neurologists in the U.S., whereas there's over 5 million patients who might be treatable by aducanumab. Those stories, plus Apple is out with a slew of new features for techies. The president is out with a plan to clear the supply chain bottlenecks and ransomware. Beware, the U.S. government can hack you back. So maybe the vault was safe, but what was around the vault, not so safe? If you were to take over the whole bank, what happens? It's Tuesday, June 8th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. The Biden administration launching a government-wide effort to tackle disruptions that have plagued critical supply chains during the pandemic, establishing a new task force specifically focused on semiconductors, home building, transportation, agriculture. It's all going to be led by the secretaries of the related government agencies. And the goal is to convene stakeholders to diagnose problems and try to find some solutions. In addition, the White House saying it's going to release detailed reports today on bottlenecks in specific sectors and how it plans to address them. It's using the Defense Production Act to direct $60 million to help manufacture more active pharmaceutical ingredients in the U.S. $17 billion will go towards advanced batteries. Long, did I, did I say, well, 17 billion and then we said 60 million. I believe we meant 60 billion. Uh, Long term, the uh, White House creating a trade strike force to go after targeted threats to critical supply chains because these, these disruptions have not only resulted in consumer shortages and price increases, you're seeing administrations now, officials saying that they also pose a national security threat. An update right now on the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. U.S. law enforcement officials said that they were able to recover $2.3 million in Bitcoin that was paid to a criminal cyber group involved in that attack. That's more than half of the $4.4 million in crypto that was reportedly paid to hackers from DarkSide. Here's Deputy U.S. Attorney General Lisa Monaco. To leaders of corporations and communities alike, the threat of severe ransomware attacks pose a clear and present danger to your organization, to your company, to your customers, to your shareholders, and to your long-term success. FBI officials said that agents identified a virtual currency wallet that was used by the hackers and then obtained a court order to seize those funds. But, Andrew, this raises some huge questions about whether the United States can really be more effective in trying to track this down. Um, It's not impossible to track crypto. Currency 
exchanges and movements through it. And apparently there are only a handful of sites where most of this activity, the ransomware, is taking place. You've right. heard about some investigations recently into some of those exchanges, and you have to wonder if this is the United States government really starting to crack down and follow. Um, what's well, so happening? Bulls on Bitcoin would always say that it's tra- traceable, that it's right. trackable, and to some degree that, that, that that's the right argument. At the same time, you're seeing Bitcoin plunging this morning. Part of that is uh, the, the speculation of what the U.S. government did and how they did it. Did they actually hack the wallet? It doesn't appear that they were able to hack the wallet. That was actually a big issue. But what they did appear to do was effectively take over the server mm-hmm. where the wallet actually existed and then effectively, arguably, would have hacked Hack that, I assume. I, I don't know how you would have done that. But that seems to be what's putting pressure on Bitcoin this so morning. So maybe the vault was safe, but what was around the vault, not so safe? I, it's like if you were to take over the whole take the bank. If you were to take over the whole bank, what happens? Um, I don't know. But I think that that's, that's putting pressure now on Bitcoin. And the question is, should it? Um, I think there's, there's two arguments. One argument is uh, that, it, that it undoes some of the, the benefits of what Bitcoin may very well be and do. But that the takes out some of the downsides. The other question is whether it makes it more vulnerable. Right. I mean, there's, it, goes, it goes to both sides of this. I don't know. I've long thought, actually, if it was more regulated, you would actually, long term, it, it would become a much more stable coin. So, hard to know. Good morning. And welcome to WWDC. Should we talk Apple? Sure. Uh, doubling down on privacy protections. That's the takeaway from yesterday's presentation at Apple's developer conference. Now, the company rolling out what is called tracker blockers in its mail app that will help hide your IP address and location, prevent senders from seeing if and when you open an email. It's also adding an app tracker report where users can see how often apps use your info. And a new service called iCloud Plus will include a feature called Private Relay routes web traffic through two separate servers to mask the sites you're browsing, much like a VPN. Now, separately, Apple announced a new feature that allows users to uh, use the same mouse, which I like, by the way, this is, this is for me, uh, and keyboard across a Mac and an iPad. So I'm, I have an iPad in front of me right now. If you're on here, it can go over to that screen. It can go, I think that's a great thing. Turns the iPad uh, into a second screen, effectively. Other announcements include FaceTime calls that can be scheduled, it's, it's sort of a Zoom kind of feature uh, and an interface for people to use FaceTime uh, using Windows and Android platforms, which actually is a That's big deal nice. because yeah. you can do it at, uh, in other places. The other thing you can do is watch movies or show people your screen or do all sorts of stuff and talk about it at the same time. Hmm. So if you wanted to watch a, oh, I was going to say if you wanted to watch a Netflix film, if you wanted to watch just about any other app, you can. You can't do it with Netflix just yet. Uh, you may soon be able to. I, I don't think for the... I don't know. You know, Netflix it doesn't run its whole system through So it's Apple's. Netflix. It's on Netflix, not on... No, no, no. This program works for Disney Plus and so, so many of the others, huh. but it doesn't appear, at least at the beginning, to be uh, hooked into Netflix. Uh, you can soon be able to use your Apple wallet as your ID. Uh, Apple will support scanning U.S. IDs, such as driver's licenses, and then they're going to be accepted by the TSA. It's only supported, though... Uh, in some states for now. I think one of the more interesting things is watching Tim Cook addressing the audience that was full right. of avatars. Yep. I guess that's one way to control the developers. It's wonderful to see so many familiar faces with us today. It was a very clever and well done uh, video. They've, they've really managed to, uh, to produce a pretty cool thing each time. The question, I mean, I'm assuming they're going to want people back in that, that theater at some point. They spent a fortune building the original theater. Things are very slowly kind of 
rolling back, and it depends on where you are with, with some of these conferences. I know Brian right. Sullivan was talking this morning about how he's headed out today for an oil conference in person tomorrow. But if you, if you read, I don't know if you've seen the whole brouhaha at Apple, the employees don't want to, wanting to come back. The, or not, the employees right. don't want to come back. With that um, campus that they just invested so much money in. Right. Mark Benioff was on with Kramer, I think, or maybe it was on Closing Bell yesterday, talking about how Salesforce um, is probably not going to see most of their employees come back, back, even though they have spent right. so much money on their campus as well. I have a different perspective on going back in the office, and I don't not ringing some kind of bell saying, all right, everybody get back in the office, here we go. I'm saying the world has changed, and yes, they'll come back. Look, before this started, Sarah, 20% of our workers worked at home. We already knew that. Now, I think maybe 50, 60% are going to be working at home. I'm not really sure. It's fascinating. Um, other thing, by the way, for those people, do you get, how many newsletters a day do you get? Uh, countless. A million, right? Yeah. So nobody's really talking about this. The privacy feature that Apple just put into this is going to make, have a huge impact on advertising for newsletters because you can't track whether they're opened anymore. But it's not just... And this goes to... Actually, I like that. I I hate that people can track when I open things because when I get complaints from people who realize I'm not opening it... That's your... I haven't blocked you. Leave me alone. Okay. Um, Wait, this hits Dealbook. Is this what? This hits all. This hits. By the way, hits every newsletter. No, hits anybody who's in the in the newsletter franchise. I mean, that's the broader concern that. Anybody who's been using Apple for delivery on some of these things has complained about, right? This, uh, that, that it changes the entire advertising structure Mechanism. This is, this goes, for anybody who relies look, it hurts, on it. But it hurts Facebook. It hurts every, everybody else. Right. The, the, I've always thought the email tracking was the most benign version of it because you can't actually track. Nobody that I know actually tracks things on a um, per-person basis. It's always, it's always oh, aggregated. I've, I've heard from a few people so. for not opening their oh. their newsletter. Okay. So I'm actually a fan as a Maybe user. Because you know. I, okay. I, I didn't even know that you could see those things until I heard from some of them, that I wasn't reading it every day. Interesting. Yeah. I want to hear about who that is later. We'll go to commercial and be out. Maybe I'll find out. Coming up on Squawk Pod, billionaire businessman and hedge funder Mark Lasry, where Bitcoin, meme stocks, and interest rates go from here. Right now, the Fed's in a little bit of a box, at least for the next year or two. I don't know what happens, you know, a couple of years from now, but at least for the next year or two, you want to be an investor. And the Milwaukee Bucks owner on getting back in the game, maybe not in Tokyo, but somewhere. Look, I'm available. If anybody needs me to get to the Olympics... And to play, I think it'd be great to have somebody who's 60 years old playing uh, in a basketball game. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Stand back, you buy. This is Squawk Pod. Two, one, cure, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe's out today, but joining us for the morning is Far Peak founder and former New York Stock Exchange president, Tom Farley. Tom, good to have you here. Good morning, Becky. Ready to go for another hour? Let's go. Let's right. go. Let's come up with something controversial for Andrew and me. Yeah, he's thinking about it right now. Hope you are, too. I, I'm coming up with something. 
He's got something cooking. Let's get to the markets right now with an investing expert. Our guest this hour is here to talk about the recent volatility in meme stocks, crypto's latest up and down moves, and the economic recovery from the pandemic, what it's doing to stock markets everywhere. Joining us right now is Mark Lazary. Of course, he's Avenue Capital's group co-founder, CEO, and chairman. He's also the co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. And Mark, thanks for being here today. It's great to see you. My pleasure. How have you been? Pretty good. Pretty good. We are back. We're back at the NASDAQ and raring to go. And it seems like economies everywhere are really starting to open up. And that kind of is what I've been thinking about with you. You're somebody who's very opportunistic, often looking for distressed arenas, looking for opportunities where other people don't see it. But the markets around the globe have been incredibly strong as things reopen. So I just wonder, is it a lot harder to find opportunities these days? And where do you go? It is harder. Uh... You know, it, it's been great for for everyone because the economy, it's exactly what you said, everything's going really well. Um, so for us, what we're doing is a lot of special situations and a lot of specialty lending. So the part of our business that's really grown a lot is, shockingly, people still need money. And if they can't access it, you know, you were talking about where treasuries are. If you can't borrow at 1% or 2%, um, then you've got to come to someone like us, and we're lending you money somewhere around, you know, I would say 8 to 15%. It depends on the situation. Wow. Yeah, so it's, I think for us, this has been one of the best times ever, uh, just because of the tremendous amount of need for capital um, and the fact that people need that capital. So we've been able to lend at pretty good rates. You know, that, that, that's kind of shocking because we talk all the time about how much money is sloshing around out there. What, what industries, what types of companies can't get access to the money at, at these incredibly low rates? Who has to pay 10, 15 percent? You know, you know what it is? It's just it's always there's always a special situation. There's always a problem because you're absolutely right. There's so much capital. So the reason a company can't can't access the capital markets is either it just came out of bankruptcy or um you know, the banks are not going to lend because the EBITDA number is low, but they've got a lot of assets. So you're able to end up lending money to all these different companies. And it's throughout the world. For us, it's been in Asia. It's been in Europe. Um, it's been here in the U.S. So, you know, I mean, examples obviously would be in the aviation in the aviation field. It's been in the oil sector, uh, in the energy sector. It's been out in um in the UK, it's actually just being on the home building um, where developers can't get access to capital to buy sites. Um, you can always borrow money to buy a home, but you can't borrow money to end up buying the sites and build those homes. So for us, um, it's actually been great. Mark, when you say it like that, I think that your competition these days must be like the retail investors who are driving up the meme stocks because they look at situations where you'd never be able to get money in the past, whether that's Hertz or AMC or somewhere else, yeah. and they are kind of jumping into the rescue. So what do you think about retail investing and, and what's happening with the meme stocks? Look, I think for us, when I look at that, um, it's just too volatile for us. So we don't really get involved in that. Um, but I would tell you, I'm amazed. I mean, you take a look at sort of what's happened in a number of those companies and the value of those companies. AMC is a great example. It's just moved up. Um, and you look at what those companies are making relative to the value and it makes no sense. But I'm not going to fight it. So therefore, we're not going to get involved in it. Um, it. It's just illogical what's happening there. 
But what's different from the retail investors in AMC and what you'd be doing with an airline or a hotel company or somebody else who can't get access to capital? So I would tell you the difference is really simple. We're, we're senior, we're secure, we're lending at the top of the capital structure, and we think we've got all the asset value. Um, the retail investors are putting money into the equity, and they're, you know, if there's a problem, there's no way they're going to do well if there's a liquidation or if all of a sudden there's a change in sentiment. For us, if there's a change in sentiment, in sentiment it's fine because we think we're over collateralized. That would be the difference. Hey, Mark, what did you think of what uh, Mudrick did with AMC last week? Because that was an interesting move. Somebody who owned the debt, if you will, right. and playing the equity to improve the debt position, in fact. Yeah, I think what he was doing was hedging it. Um, I don't know the full, you know, the full situation, but I think what Jason's been doing has actually been brilliant. He's been doing a great job of lending money to these companies and also ending up getting some equity. So he's actually been playing that exceptionally well. You start looking around the globe. Um, the United States is probably a, a much tougher place to find opportunities. It I, is. I've always thought of you as kind of looking to Europe and doing a lot of research there. But I think lately you've kind of turned more towards China. What, what are you seeing? Well, that's exactly it. We're seeing a huge amount of opportunities in Asia, um, in China, um, in Europe. It's really the same thing as the lending. Um, and the reason for that is really our competition is really private equity firms or direct lending firms. So, and there just isn't as much capital out there as there is here in the U.S. Here in the U.S., it's it's really it's gotten very very hard because the system. You know, you've got the high yield. You've got you've got everything out there where people can borrow money. Um, I would tell you in China and in Asia, it's a lot easier for us to make those investments. So you're absolutely correct. And part of the reason is just there's less competition. Mark, I remember several years ago, you predicted that Bitcoin would go to 40,000. Bitcoin went to 40,000. Now it's back below 40,000. What are your latest thoughts? Oh, you know, when, when I did that, I, I just thought you were going to have, um, once a market is created, it's there. That, that, that to me was the reason why I thought it was interesting on Bitcoin. Um, and I thought that as soon as you had institutional investors coming in, the price would move up. Um, I think today, um, I, I don't. I honestly don't know where it's going to go. But mm -hmm. you've got that market; it's there. Um, I could make you an argument; it could go to a hundred, a hundred thousand. I could make you an argument; it could go to sort of twenty thousand. I, I, I think it, the probability, as more and more people keep using Bitcoin, it's going to keep moving up. Um, but yeah, it's happened a little bit quicker than I thought it would. I should have bought a lot more. That was my mistake. <laughs> in, in, in terms of that delta, the, the 100,000 and 20,000, can it go more than that? And the reason I ask is when it was 5,000, going from 5,000 to potentially 100,000, that was actually a, a, a great bet if, if you believe yeah. that. It's harder today to make that, you know, people then have to sort of make some decisions about whether they want to do this in Bitcoin. Maybe they want to try another uh, yeah. cryptocurrency or buy something else in the market that could do better. Yeah, I, it's a great question because right now, you know, you're sort of looking at it and saying, okay, it could go up two or three times or it could go down 50%. You've got that with a lot of stocks. And I, I think you're absolutely correct. It's changed. Whereas I think the first time around, you could be up 20 times, you could be up 10 times, and maybe you could lose sort of, you know, 20, 30, 40% of your capital. Um, it's changed. It, you're, you're absolutely correct. I think the reward on it 
is not as high as it used to be. But so you don't think the upside, because there's other people who believe, you know, the, 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 the genuine bulls, I don't know if the genuine bulls might say it's worth half a million dollars or a million dollars eventually a coin, in which case the, the, that delta all of a sudden becomes I, I, yeah. potentially more interesting. Yeah, I, I would find that hard. I mean, look, I think in any situation you can find people who are going to tell you something's going to go up 10 times. Um, it's, it's just hard. You've got you've had a lot more acceptance. You've got to end up for Bitcoin to move up. You've got to not have any legal issues. You've not you countries are going to have to say, don't worry, we're going to accept it as a currency. Um, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. I think you're going to be in the world we're in today where there's a little bit of uncertainty. Mark, Kevin Warsh, a former member of the Federal Reserve Board, um, squawk guest, too, has an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal today that talks about what he calls the Fed's risky fill-the-punch-bowl strategy, just saying that growth is surging, the housing market's hot, inflation is back up there, and it's time for the Fed to pull back. I, I just wonder where you come down on this in terms of what the Fed is doing, in terms of what that means to the markets. Do you think their actions are inflating the market's beyond reasonable expectations. I, look, it's clear that their actions are inflating the market. Is it, is it beyond what people think it should be? That I don't know. Look, at the end of the day, if you sort of look at it, you tell me when in the history of sort of, you know, what we know, where the, the government is going to put out somewhere between 3 to $5 trillion into an economy where... The market is at an all-time high. The savings is at an all-time high. I mean, it's it, look, it's unprecedented. I think it's, you know, if you're an investor, it's great. You want to be investing. Um, and I try not to figure out what the Fed is doing. Uh, the Fed will tell you, um, you know, so we're not buying treasuries. So we're not worried about the movement. But as you see rates move up, that's when you'll start seeing that's when you'll start seeing the market coming in a little bit. But till then, I think you want to be an investor. I mean, it's just you've got so much money coming into the system. You think there's a risk of a, a, a taper tantrum if the Fed starts to signal that, OK, it's it's going to start unwinding some of these positions. It's not going to be holding on to things that the quantitative easing, so to speak, is going to be out the window or is it until the Fed starts to raise rates? How, how does the market read this? Is it going to be different than a few years ago? I think it's when rates start moving up, um, because right now capital is just so easy to get. So for companies that don't have issues, and, that, and that's the majority of companies. So, you know, for people buying homes, for everything, having low rates is fabulous. As rates start moving up, that means you're going to have less money in the system because you're, everybody's paying more in interest. I mean, the other issue, to be blunt, and it's one nobody really talks about, higher rates is higher interest rates for on all the debt that we have outstanding. And you're going to have more and more money going to pay off that debt and to pay off that interest. Um, so you'll have less money to end up doing social services or to do any of those things. So I, I think right now the Fed's in a little bit of a box, um, at least for the next year or two. I don't know what happens you know, a couple of years from now, but at least for the next year or two, you want to be an investor. Mark, uh, on the under the business of sports, uh, you own yes. the Milwaukee Bucks, who are playing a seem, seeming uh, super team, the Brooklyn Nets, and they they just they don't miss. Take us yeah. inside the locker room. What is what is Coach Budenholzer telling telling the team after uh, last night seeing the Nets make fifth whatever it was fifty five percent of their three point shots? 
oh, it's not complicated. He's telling him play a little more defense. It's uh, <laughs> trying to make sure they don't make those shots. Uh, um, I don't, I think it's, you know, basketball is a bit of a simple sport. Make your shots and make sure the other guy doesn't. Yesterday, um, yesterday that didn't happen. You know, uh, after the game, I went out to dinner with uh, the owners of the Bucks, uh, Joe Sy and, and Ollie Weisberg. And, you know, we're eating and they're like, hey, we're really sorry. I'm like, don't worry about it. As soon as we get to Milwaukee, things are going to be totally different. Um, and look, I hope they are. You know, at the end of the day, if we make our shots, It'll be fine. I mean, yesterday we just didn't make our shots. And the net, it's exactly what you said. The Nets couldn't miss. I mean, Kyrie and Kevin uh, Durant did a phenomenal job. Our job is to stop them. And until that happens, um, things aren't going to change. You, you, you're, you're living the dream. You, you know, you didn't grow up with much. You worked your tail off. Now you own a sports team. I, speaking for myself, I think a lot of us fantasize about being in your position. It, is it a little awkward? Like, you know, do you have taking the fan hat off and putting the business hat on and having to make tough budget decisions? You know, are you more kind of CEO or are you more super fan? I think you're super fan. I mean, you don't really have a choice. <laughs> you really don't. If you want to make money and cut costs, um, you're not going to have a great team. I mean, it's just ultimately at the end of the day, what happens is you buy a team and you start focusing on how you're going to make money. And very quickly, you realize that you want to win and you want to end up, you know, trying to win an NBA championship. And to do that is going to cost money. I mean, that's, you know, if you look at what's happened with the Nets and with us, um, you're going to be in the luxury tax. And the reason for that is because everybody's trying to win. Um, so you become super fan um, because really your desire to win um, overcomes your desire to end up making money on these things. And by the way, you'll make money if you win the championship, because then then you've got all these playoff games. Um, so everybody in their model goes, well, you know, if we have 12 playoff games, everything will be great. But that means you got to get to the NBA finals. So hopefully we get there. Hey, Mark, uh, wanted to get you to weigh in, if you could, on the Summer Olympics and what you think should happen in Tokyo. I ask LeBron James has now said he's not going to be playing. Uh, Steph Curry says he might still what do you think should happen? You know, look, uh, I think ultimately it is a personal decision. I mean, it's, it's just how much risk that people want to take. Uh, I think I think if you're vaccinated, um, it's it should be fine. And I think at that point, people have to decide what they want to do. You know, my view is, look, I've been vaccinated. And I think once you're vaccinated, you just feel a lot more comfortable. And I'm willing to take a lot more risks because of that. Others may not. Do you want your so players I, playing, though? Look, for me, I would love them to rest, but I think it's, you know, it's their decision. I think part of the reason LeBron and a couple others don't want to play is um, they've been playing for quite some time and their bodies need some rest. Um, but, look, I'm available. If anybody needs me to get to the Olympics and to play, um, I think it'd be great to have somebody who's 60 years old playing uh, in a basketball <laughs> game. But so far, nobody's calling yeah, let us know as the I'm offers waiting. come pouring in, Mark. <laughs> yeah, um, they're not coming. Trust me. Mark, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time. My we'll pleasure. talk to you again soon. Okay, take care. Take care. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the first new drug for Alzheimer's in two decades comes from Biogen, but a lot of concerns from watchers of the stock about how well it works. We'll hear from analyst Kevin Huang. Even if it does prove to be efficacious, 
we think that it's not a clinically meaningful amount, as we saw from the results from the earlier trials that Biogen ran. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Welcome back, everybody. Biogen shares soaring in yesterday's session. All of this comes after the FDA approved the company's controversial Alzheimer's drug. This is the first new therapy for the disease in nearly two decades. Meg Terrell joins us right now with more on this landmark surprise decision. Meg, good morning. Good morning, Becky. This was a surprise and it was a landmark. As you mentioned, the first new Alzheimer's drug approved in the U.S. since 2003 and the first ever that targets what's thought to be a potential cause uh, of the underlying driver of the disease. Uh, now, there are six million uh, Americans diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease now and two million who are in the early stages of the disease, which is where Biogen tested this drug. We spoke with Biogen CEO Michelle Venances yesterday about what this drug does and how it might work. Here's what he said. We are delighted about this approval and we are committed to continue to study the product. This was the plan in any case. So having to do another study is nothing extraordinary. We are committed to learn even more. It's a new beginning. And what he was alluding to there was another study that the FDA is requiring of the company, because as you mentioned, this was a controversial decision because of mixed clinical trial data supporting the drug's application. So what the FDA did was grant accelerated approval based on the fact that the drug clears these amyloid plaques from the brain, uh, which is expected to confer a benefit in slowing the declines in memory and thinking clearly that come with Alzheimer's disease. So as this drug gets out onto the market, the company will be required to run a trial confirming that clinical benefit. Now, we talked with Michelle Venances yesterday. He said the company has up to nine years to produce those results to the FDA. Now, technically, the FDA could pull the drug back off the market if those results don't confirm the benefit. However, we don't often see that that happens. This is a pathway most often seen with cancer drugs, guys. Now, as the company runs this confirmatory trial and launches this drug, it has set a price of $56,000 per year per patient for this medicine, which was four times higher than what many expected. And what some are saying could be the largest drug of all time, just given the sheer number of people with Alzheimer's disease. Some on Wall Street already worrying this could lead to pushback from the U.S. government, as so many of these Alzheimer's patients, of course, are covered by Medicare. At the same time, guys, you saw massive moves in other names working in the Alzheimer's space yesterday. Eli Lilly in particular, which also has a similar Alzheimer's drug following Biogen's in the pipeline, as well as some other names. You can see the massive moves there. As many in the space think this means increased flexibility from the FDA on Alzheimer's and neurology in, in general. Becky. Meg, thank you so much. So much to talk about, and I want to have you back very soon. But we have another guest joining us right now to talk about the impact of this decision. Kevin Wang is a CFRA senior research 
senior equity research analyst who covers biotech and medtech. And Kevin, you raised your price target yesterday uh, based on this news, but you raised it to $363 from just $228. Your new price target is still below where that stock traded yesterday. So should we count you in the skeptics in terms of the company being able to get reimbursed um, or, or maybe make a real go of this? I'm certainly still a bit of a skeptic. I think that the launch will be slower than most people anticipate. Uh, one of the main reasons is that there's only 18,000 neurologists in the U.S. by our estimates, whereas there's over 5 million patients who might be treatable by aducanumab. And on top of that, there are protocols in place such as MRI scans before treatment and during treatment, and also constant monitoring that are going to increase the burden of sort of the physicians and keeping track of the patients. And then this confirmatory study is also going to probably um, make some payers and physicians hesitant to prescribe the drug. So I think there are certainly challenges for aducanumab before it's widely reimbursed. You know, let me just play devil's advocate, take the other side of this. For the loved ones of patients of, of, of Alzheimer's, this is incredible hope. It's the first time there's something new, some new treatment, some new therapy. In, in 18 years. And you can imagine that people are going to be lining up behind this, uh, hoping that their relatives can qualify for this, that they can start taking this. I, I do realize it's an incredibly expensive price, $56,000 versus the ten dollars to $25,000 that a lot of analysts and industry watchers had anticipated. But I guess it comes down to will insurance companies pay? If, if they think it's infect, effective, insurance companies might just do that because Alzheimer's is such a costly disease. Um, you can live for forever while your brain is not there, so you can't take care of yourself. It's something like $600 billion a year that the United States spends on trying to care for Alzheimer's patients. I, I guess that comes down to it. When do you think we'll have a clearer idea about the efficacy, about whether this works? I think the confirmatory studies are likely going to take a few years to show if there is efficacy or not. But based on the results we've seen so far, even if it does prove to have to be efficacious, we think that it's not a clinically meaningful amount, as we saw from the results from the earlier trials that Biogen ran. We were looking for um, a decline of one to two points on the CDRSB scale, which was the endpoint that was used by Biogen, but they only had a decline of about 0 0.5, which suggests that um, this might be giving patients false hope by approving this early, and it's going to cost U.S. taxpayers a lot of money as well. I guess, finally, Kevin, if, if if there was something that would change your mind, what, what would you have to see before you thought, okay, th this has a better shot than, I, than I'd anticipated? I think maybe if while they're running the confirmatory studies, we see in the, the subgroup of patients that had a really strong response to the drug, if we see that that uh, gets the, the responses higher than what we had seen previously, perhaps it could prove to be clinically meaningful. And in that case, I think... Um, yeah, uh, aducanumab might be beneficial and payers might be willing to reimburse it. But we think that approving it in its, in its form is kind of a risk because now other competitors are going to be submitting similar drugs that sort of meet this low bar. And we're imagining the com competitive landscape is going to change drastically over the next decade. The only thing I'll say is if the FDA is opening up on, on, on trying some of these things with patients who have um, very few other options, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all in favor of that. We'll see what that means for the broader industry. Kevin, mm -hmm. I want to thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me.
And that's the podcast for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis for our TV show right into your ears. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you. Please let us know what you think. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Just say hi. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.